Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 7 of Cosmic Controversy. Today we switch gears from coverage of astronomy and astrobiology and move to a bit of aerospace history. Today's episode coincides with the forthcoming publication of a brand new book on the April 1942 Doolittle bombing raid on Tokyo, some four months after the December 1941 Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Today's special guest is Michelle Paradis, a lecturer at Columbia University Law School in New York City, a senior attorney for the U.S. Department of Defense, and the author of Last Mission to Tokyo, the extraordinary story of the Doolittle Raiders and their final fight for justice. The book is out July 28th from Simon & Schuster, and Michelle joins us from Manhattan. Michelle, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be on. So, um, would you give us a thumbnail sketch of the Doolittle Raid and, and basically what it entailed, and then we can kind of cover some of the strategy and the thinking before the raid actually took place? Yeah, it's um, you know just an amazing story, one of those truly heroic moments in American military history. Um, so, we're, here we are in April of 1942. Uh, five months earlier, Pearl Harbor has been attacked. World War II is not going well for the Allies. Uh, The Nazis have invaded the Soviet Union. The uh, Japanese have pushed their perimeter out all the way to Australia and are now regularly bombing the Australian uh, Australian coast. The major British cities of Shanghai and Singapore have fallen to Japanese control. The Philippines, which is America's largest colony at the time, falls to Japanese control. America, Americans, 10,000 Americans are put through the Bataan Death March. Uh, it's a humiliating moment in World War II, in the Pacific and as well as in the European theater. And the Doolittle Raid is this mission that where Jimmy Doolittle leads uh, who at the time is a colonel in the American Air Force, uh, or it's actually a lieutenant colonel in the American Air Force, leads 79 other men, 16 army bombers off an aircraft carrier that has driven in secret for weeks towards the Japanese coast in order to do a counter-strike on Japan. And it is impossible to overstate what a significant moment that is when he leads these 16 bombers over Japan, they attack the heart of Tokyo, the heart of Nagoya, the heart of Kobe, and all escape. Not a single plane is shut down. And this is the first time in all of recorded history that Japan suffers an attack from abroad. The last army to even get close is Kublai Khan in the 13th century. (laughs) That's incredible. He mounts a naval invasion, much like uh, the D-Day invasion on Normandy, but twice the size. And before he can land on the Japanese coast, a tsunami blows apart his flotilla. And this tsunami goes down in Japanese history, in Japanese lore, as the divine wind. The word for the divine wind in Japanese, the kamikaze. So Japan has this mythology of its invulnerability 
to dangers from the outside world. Its seas are its moat. And as a practical matter, it had been true. It was a myth that was true. And the Doolittle Raid, in one blow, shatters that myth in ways that have you know, strategic and moral and uh, just like psychological implications okay, um, that okay. we live with to this day. So when did uh, uh, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt actually make the decision that this was how he would initially respond to the attack on Pearl Harbor? So the decision-making process, you know, I mean, begins almost immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, everyone knows what a blow this has been to the United States. And as the war goes badly, Roosevelt is demanding more and more the opportunity for a strike against Japan. Uh, the earliest discussion of attacking Japan, of a launching a counterstrike, uh, come in December of 1941, well after um, or well before Jimmy Doolittle uh, is even tapped for the job. But a plan, an idea, pops up from a naval base. In fact, there's a young um, uh, lieutenant commander in the Navy is, is reviewing the construction of an aircraft carrier. Ironically enough, the aircraft, aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet. And while he's in dry dock, he looks at some uh, army bombers taking a, uh, doing practice runs over a sketch of an aircraft carrier on the runway. And he gets the idea, perhaps you could actually take a bomber off of an aircraft carrier with enough of a payload to actually do some damage on Japan. So he puts this idea out into the mix. It ultimately makes its way to General Hap Arnold, who's the head of the Army Air Forces in the early, night, in, in the early part of the war. And uh, Hap Arnold, his first instinct, like the instinct of most people, is that's impossible. You, you can't do it. Right. Yeah. Um, but he yeah. nevertheless tasks Jimmy Doolittle with finding a way. And well, that's what Doolittle does. Well, let's, uh, let's step back a moment. <clears throat> We're going to get into that, but let's step back a moment and, and set the scene for us at the end of world of, of at the end of 1941 in the Pacific. How vulnerable was the U.S.'s west coast in Hawaii from Japanese attack at that point? And uh, what was the state of our navy? And and uh, what were our our own options for the defense of our homeland? So the, the state of the Navy was not strong. Um, our carriers had been spared in the attack on Pearl Harbor, but we only had four uh, compared to, I believe, Japan, Japan's nine at the time. Uh, the carriers that we did have out at sea were not modern aircraft carriers. Uh, most of them, if not all of them, had built, been built in the 1920s, and so were not you know, up to the state of the art the way Japan's were. Um, Japan had obviously shown an ability and a willingness to attack Pearl Harbor. Everyone in Hawaii expected them to do it again. Um, Japan had pushed its offensive perimeter almost to the entire Pacific Rim and, in fact, was beginning to do submarine patrols along the Pacific coast. In fact, there was a, uh, uh, the 17th Bombardment Group, which is the part of the Army Air Forces that ultimately uh, conducts the Doolittle Raid. In December of 1941, the 17th Bomb Group is stationed up in Oregon and doing, and their job is to do daily patrols along the Pacific coast for Japanese submarines. And in fact, a few days, I believe, before Christmas, if my memory serves, um, they actually end up uh, sinking a Japanese submarine, or at least having an engagement with a Japanese submarine off the California coast. But word of this is kept entirely out of the papers. They're trying not to start a panic. And, uh, in the United States. And how close, uh, aside from the submarines, how close did, did the U.S. come to having a full-scale invasion of the West Coast by Japan's armed forces at the time? Were they actually, so, pre so, pre were they actually yeah. preparing to bomb Los Angeles, for instance? 
Um, that, I think, for the very reasons that the Doolittle raid seemed to be utterly impossible uh, uh, at the time, um, Japan could have had no realistic plans to actually invade the West Coast. Australia, by, the, by contrast, really was in uh, imminent danger of invasion. And we, and we know that Japan certainly could have uh, done something similar, perhaps, to the Doolittle raid, because that's exactly what it was doing in Australia at the time. It was conducting regular air raids over the Australian, the northern, northern coast of Australia, including Darwin. But did Japan have any plans to invade Hawaii? Um, interestingly enough, there is not a lot of evidence to suggest that Japan act, wanted to attack Hawaii again. Um, I think at the point of, certainly in early 1942, um, Japan had made its primary um, objectives, the taking of strategically valuable territory, um, both in the Philippines, uh, in what we would now call Indonesia, um, as well as in China, because from Japan's standpoint, the early, certainly in the early phases of the war, um, the objective was less global domination than it was to secure the resources that it believed it needed to be able to fight its long-standing civil war in China, or so, so long-standing war um, against the Chinese, which it had been just a brutal guerrilla war uh, starting in 1937. And so Japan's lack of access to international oil markets um, its inability to get what were called the two blacks and the two whites, cotton, coal, sugar, and oil, um, were its primary strategic drivers, particularly in the early phase of the war. Um, so I don't know that Japan ever had an interest in invading Hawaii, in part because Hawaii was not strategically significant, except to the extent it was a, the, the base of American naval operations in the Pacific. Um, so... You know, that I think was less of a risk. But I can tell you this, that in the weeks after the Doolittle Raid, at very high levels of the Air Force, including Hap Arnold, um, all hands were put on deck. There was a general alert put in place out of fear that the Japanese would attempt a retaliatory Doolittle Raid, essentially a retaliatory carrier-based airstrike um, against Los Angeles, against the Pacific Coast. So at the time, it was certainly a realistic pro uh, possibility. But for a number of strategic reasons, some of which just from a straightforward war planning point of view, were kind of foolish. Um, the Japanese opted not to do that and instead um, made very different strategic decisions based on its own internal politics. But based on uh, what you know, uh, if the, the Americans had not launched the Doolittle Raid at the time it did, only four months after Pearl Harbor, um, would the Japanese have gone ahead with some sort of offensive on the on the american west coast um there i mean it's that, that those kind of plans i think certainly were in the um in the air but at the time just strategically and and it just as a matter of just japan's own technical capability i think japan would have said its interests at least in the early parts of the year war right so i i let me, let me caveat that by saying you know i'm sure germany felt once Germany would have said in the in the late 1930s, once we have Poland and once we have Austria, um, and maybe some of Switzerland, we'll have all the space we need. We won't need to go any further. But imperialism has a logic of its own, and so you know by the early 1940s, you have the launch of Operation Barba Barbarossa by the Nazis going into Russia. Right. So Germany had clearly become an expansionist imperial power um, by that time. So that, take that as a major caveat. Um, but the Doolittle Raid, I think, had some pretty significant strategic effects on the um, 
on Japanese strategy to that made you know any inklings they may have had to try and actually invade the Pacific coast, um, any plans or theories they might have had to invade the Pacific coast, um, completely implausible. It completely changed their strategic thinking. They went from rapidly expanding their perimeter so that Japan really was from all you know all technical lights in 1941, 1942, untouchable, um, to becoming paranoid about another attack on the mainland to the point that it started actually pulling back its forces closer. And that pullback, that refusal to deploy air power forward, um, an obsession with attacking the U.S. carrier, uh, the U.S. carrier fleet in the Pacific, um, ultimately led to Japan's strategic demise because that pullback allowed the United States to gain a foothold that would ultimately become the island hopping campaign. And the obsession with attacking carriers became uh, pathological so that they launched the utterly catastrophic, poorly conceived, you know, unkept secret on the ba- uh, that became the Battle of Midway, where Japan, I believe, lost two or three of its own aircraft carriers in one battle that was initially designed to try and take out the Americans' uh, carrier forces in the Pacific in one blow. Um, and that failure ultimately proved devastating to Japan's ability to continue to fight the war. So uh, as for the American response uh, to Pearl Harbor, uh, what other options were being considered aside from this daring Doolittle raid? Was this, in fact, the first offensive strike authorized against the Japanese? It was indeed. In fact, the Doolittle raid's original name was Special Project Number 1. Um, it was the first top-secret um, operation of the war that was designed to attack Japan proper. Now, that's not to say we weren't fighting Japan from the moment uh, you know, the, the first bombs dropped on Pearl Harbor. But that had largely been a naval engagement. We, we adopted a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. We had had a number of you know, lesser naval engagements leading up to things like the Battle of the Coral Sea and uh, ultimately Midway um, later in 1942. But the Doolittle Raid was the first real attempt to target Japan proper, to bomb Japan, to make Japan uh, vulnerable to attack, which is something, again, Japan had never experienced before. It's, it's, it's completely, um, it, it, it's impossible to overstate the strategic and psychological significance of that. And uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle was actually both, uh, strangely enough, an MIT graduate and a stunt pilot. Uh, who was he exactly? Yeah, Jimmy Doolittle is a you know a fascinating and important American figure who really deserves to have far more um, a far bigger place in in the American historical memory than I that sadly he does today. Um, so you know, born in Alaska, grows up um, you know in the Alaskan wilderness, and then moves to Southern California as a child. He. Uh, sees his first airplane at an air show uh, in the early, I think it was like 1905 or 1906. He's still a boy. And it just stops his heart, right? He looks up at this glorious flying machine that is just seems to be as heavy as anything, as heavy as a train car, but sailing through the air with a man on board and becomes just enamored of the airplane as many men of his generation did. And so he uh, signs up for what was then called the Army Air Corps during the First World War, um, where in which, uh, you know, able, being an, an Army aviator is probably the single most dangerous job you can possibly have. Uh, one third died in combat, another third died in accidents. Um, but faithfully, Doolittle actually misses. He, he just doesn't get to the front in time. And so he faithfully misses action that probably would have killed him uh, during World War I. And in the 20s, 
um, becomes something of a celebrity stunt pilot. And this is the era, you must remember, too, that where pilots were, you know, riding airplanes like unbroken horses. This was the time um, of sky jousting and the Red Baron. And Doolittle certainly fit that mold. He had this, uh, you know, pugnacious, over-bubbling with energy uh, personality. But he was also uh, a, a, a technician. You know, he got, as you said, he got his Ph.D., uh, from MIT in what you know, we would now call aeronautical engineering. He was all about making the relevant numbers add up. Um, he was concerned that too much of flying had been left to the gut and that these were actually scientific problems, problems of engineering and aerodynamics that could be solved. Um, and he would do these things that made him look completely insane um, you know, to fit this flyboy stereotype. Uh, he even did one demonstration of a flight over Long Island where he took off uh, flew about 14 miles in the air and then came back and landed on the ground all the while with these black panels covering the windshield of his plane, flying totally on the instruments, proving that he could fly blind. Uh, but what he was really <laughs> proving gosh. was that airplanes could be controlled with instrumentation. Right. And so he was a real natural person to ask to see if something like the Doolittle Raid could be pulled, pulled off because his attitude was, I got to make the numbers add up. We have so much fuel. We have so much weight. We have so much distance and time. I have to make these. Can I make these numbers add up? And he ultimately does. That's what's, that's what's so amazing, right? He, he does this thing that everyone thinks correctly is impossible in 1942, and he does it with math. Well, we're going to do. Um, we're going to get. We're going to get to the uh, some more detail about that. But but first, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the volunteers because the training for this mission took place at Eglin Air Force Base. Uh, in the north, in the Panhandle of Florida, is that correct? That's that's right, right near Pensacola. Okay, and the the volunteers uh, were from the Seventeenth Bombardment Group, which uh, was also based in Florida. Is that a, is, that's correct? Uh, well, the Seventeenth Bomb Group I moved around a couple of times, uh, if I recall. So initially, uh, in the early months of the war, they were stationed in Oregon, uh, doing patrols along the. Um, Pacific Coast that I talked about before, uh, they go to, I want to say, South Carolina, North Carolina, North or South Carolina, I'm not forgetting which one, uh, for about a month um, around the time the Doolittle Raid is beginning to get planned. And then once Doolittle gets his volunteers together, he brings them all down to, to Eglin uh, in Pensacola. Right. Okay. By the way, that the uh, those are not sound effects for this episode. <laughs> uh, that's actually a seaplane either landing or, or taking off from Lake Washington here. Anyway. <laughs> well timed. Well it sounds like uh, we have uh, World War II sound effects in the background, but that's it. So uh, what intrigued you most about Doolittle's raid? I, I was just blown away by the ingenuity of it all. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's this, you know, apparent suicide mission, not unlike his effort to fly blind, right? Doing something that just your gut tells you can't work, shouldn't work, is going to kill you. Um, and But he pulls it off. And not only does he pull it off, all but three of the men he takes on that mission survive the, the initial encounter. Uh, two die when one of the planes crash off the, um, the Chinese coast. And another young man named Leland Factor uh, ejects from his plane in time. Uh, but lands on some rocks and, and, and essentially dies of his injuries um, after falling on some rocks from his parachute. Um, so the thing that just bewitched me was this idea that here you have this man, here you have all these young men who are you know, willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, 
um, in a war for their their country, in a war for all of civilization, for at least you know liberal democratic civilization, um, and they pull it off not simply through bravery, although you know you can't ignore or gainsay the bravery of doing it, but they pull, it, but they actually like put their minds to it and make sure they can pull it off, um, and and that's what's so amazing. It's this kind of American ingenuity, right? The Japanese were plenty brave. Um, I think anyone who gets into a plane and willingly drives it. You know, in, in, as, a, in, as a kamikaze, there's there's a bravery to that, but it's also horribly stupid. Um, it's not something you can do more than once. And the idea that you know it was not just American courage, but American ingenuity that made this seemingly impossible mission um, a reality and a success um, is just something. Again, I think it's a, it's a part of our history we can we can just really be proud of and should be proud of because it speaks to the the best kind of stuff we can do. So you note in your book that. Uh during the training, they had a very difficult time getting the takeoff roll down to 500 feet, but finally split, stripped the plane down enough to do so. And, and again, they trained at Eglin Air Force Base. Um, so can you describe uh, the process of actually getting this uh, B-25, and a bit about the B-25 as well. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, getting this uh, bomber stripped down to, uh, you know, uh, a low enough weight that it could take off on a on in 500 feet or less. Yeah, it was it was an incredible effort of trial and error and creativity. Um, so when Doolittle initially gets asked to, whether or not a mission like this is even possible, um, you know the obvious answer is no. The you know the kind of planes, the single engine planes you have on aircraft carriers at the time, you know they're going to have a max radius of maybe a thousand miles. Um, you know, pretty low payload, you know, maybe about 2,000 pounds of bombs um, in a single piloted plane, not much room for error. Um, so you need a sizable bomber both to make the distance and also to carry any kind of significant enough payload uh, to have an impact once you're over Japan. Uh, but the problem with an army bomber, for one, is you can't take an army bomber off an aircraft carrier. The, the B-25, which ultimately gets used, is designed to take off over, you know, over 1,000 feet, you know, nearly half a mile. Um, of runway, and the even if you can take these big fat army bombers off of an aircraft carrier in 1942, you can't land it. Um, you know, if you, even if you were somehow able to get the plane onto the aircraft carrier, uh, the tail hook would probably rip the would probably rip the whole tail of the plane off entirely, uh, just because of the amount of momentum um, a big heavy plane like that would have. And even if you did it, you could only get it do it once because you couldn't actually get the plane down underneath the, the deck of the aircraft carrier. So it is huge engineering problems. And so Doolittle first looks at the B-23, um, which could do it, right? It has like the, the shape and size to be able to kind of get off an aircraft carrier that quickly and also maybe even fly that distance with some weight, but its wings are too long. You can't actually get it onto the aircraft carrier. It can't actually maneuver around on the aircraft carrier. Um, and the B-26 similarly has the kind of same, same kind of problems, um, and, it, and it just can't pull off the meet the mission uh, requirements. And so the B-25 ends up kind of falling in the Goldilocks zone. But in order to do that, he has to take these B-25s to uh, mid-continent airlines and totally remodify them. He actually gets out a piece of paper and hand draws all the modifications he needs, which basically mean taking out every piece of equipment. Um, that isn't necessary for getting the plane up in the air or dropping a bomb once you're up in the air. Uh, he leaves only two guns on the plane, the, the mounted gun and also a, you know, a 30 caliber gun in the nose. And every other bit of space, including that little gangplank uh, walkway that, that 
goes between the, the cockpit and the bombardier section in the B-25 are filled with gas tanks. Uh, at one point, he even tries to create a, a big rubber bladder uh, that he can fill with gas. But the problem is it starts leaking and the whole plane begins to smell like gasoline and they don't want people passing out. No. Um, so, so they basically strip everything out of these planes, including all the safety measures, right? There are no tail guns now on this plane. Mm. Uh, and the Mid-Continent Airlines guys get a little concerned about this uh, because the planes look pretty vulnerable from behind because they are. Uh, and so what they do, without telling Doolittle initially, is they basically just paint some broomsticks black and then mount them <laughs> onto the back of the plane and paint little black lines to make it look like they're poking out of a turret. Um, just so it kind of looks like there might be guns on the back of the plane. Uh, they have to take out all the pyrotechnics, which you could use to help you know, deflect anti-aircraft fire. Um, and why? Well, because you've turned the whole plane into a gas can, right? If you have a bunch of pyrotechnics inside the plane and one go, accidentally goes off, you're going to ignite the whole plane. Right. Um, so it's this just you know, ruthless engineering of taking every little ounce of weight out and and then training all these pilots, right? These are pretty green pilots as as they go. These are not combat hardened pirates. It's pilots. It's still very early in the war. Um, uh, just training them on having the finesse and the confidence to get an airplane like that up in the air in 500 feet. Because if you if you don't do it in 500 feet, there's only one <laughs> there's only one result that's going to follow, and that's you're going to go nose first into the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Um, and so he just draw. He just drills so if, them. So if you had gone, if one of them had gone nose first into the Pacific, into the Pacific, uh, their chances of survival they would have likely have drowned before they could have uh, egressed. They'd be dead. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they okay. they would be dead. The okay. waves and the carrier itself would have pulled that plane right underwater, and it would have been a glass nosed coffin, oh. in which the five American, in which the five Americans would have drowned to death. Good God. Um, well, they were yeah, and very, so very very the very fortunate. Were extraordinary. So anyway, uh, did uh, President Roosevelt get congressional approval for this strike, or was it all hush-hush until it actually happened? Oh, it was 100% hush-hush. No one, even, even the men training for it, didn't know about this operation. So, fact, Congress knew no, time, so nobody in Congress knew anything about it? Uh, I'm not going to say nobody, because Roosevelt had a lot of close relationships with all sorts of lawmakers. So I, I don't know if there was like an informal discussion. The first reports about the raid don't come from the United States. They come from Japan. Japanese radio starts broadcasting that Japan was attacked today um, with all sorts of misinformation about the attack, but nevertheless that they were attacked. And all of a sudden, U.S. reporters are scrounging around trying to find any information at all right. about it. And uh, when word gets to Roosevelt, who's at Hyde Park at the time, um, he sends word back to his press secretary, Steve Early, that if anyone asks, we know nothing. And if, and if, they, uh, and if they ask where the planes came from, say, maybe they came from Shangri-La. Uh, and so that was the U.S. line. For over a month, the official administration position was, I don't know, who knows what happened? Someone bombed Japan. You know, who knows who it was? Um, and what's a reference and, to Shangri-La? Uh, 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 you know, so explain that to the listener. <laughs> so so um, the book and, and then movie that had been popular at the time called Lost Horizon, um, there is a, a Himalayan utopia uh, called Shangri-La, and Roosevelt apparently really enjoyed Lost Horizon, and so thought it would be funny um, to say Shangri-La. I think it was also an oblique um, effort at misdirection, because U.S. forces were um, operating in the China-Burma-India theater at the time, uh, right, so the Himalayan mountains. And so to the extent the Japanese thought that we were coming uh, essentially over the Himalayan mountains to attack, 
um, was a nice bit of misinformation uh, that he was hoping to circulate. Well, that's because, a, that's a whole. Not- they didn't want anyone to know how they did it. Right? Yeah. It was it was a big secret. <clears throat> that's a whole other podcast about the uh, U.S. forces and on the Chinese Burma border. Okay, um, but absolutely. Yeah. How concerned was was Roosevelt or American intelligence that the element of surprise would be lost before the attack? And were the Japan were there Japanese oh. spies in Washington that could have foiled the plan? Um, so there's no evidence that there are any Japanese spies who got word uh, of the plan, and and that's largely because Doolittle himself was cautious to the point of pathologically paranoid <laughs> about the secrecy of the mission. So one of the things, uh, one of the early decisions he made um, that I kind of mentioned before was he he contracted with Mid Continent Airlines. To be uh, to do the modifications for his plane, and one of the main reasons he chose Mid Continent Airlines um, was because it was February, and Mid Continent's facilities was was in the middle of Minnesota, and he figured no one would be, no one would want to spy on anything in the middle of Minnesota in the winter. <laughs> uh, it's just going to be too cold. Right. Um, but even the men, right? Even the men, even the Doolittle Raiders don't know what they're doing. Like they. They're not stupid. They have a sense that, you know, isn't it interesting that 500 feet tends to be the length of an aircraft carrier? Um, but they're operating in Florida, right? They have no inclination or indication that they're going to be going to the Pacific Theater. Right. It's only actually uh, two days out at sea um, when the Doolittle Raiders are on the aircraft carrier at the USS Hornet. And the radio breaks in. And Admiral Bill Halsey just announces to everybody on board, this force is bound for Tokyo. And that's the first moment. That's the first moment. Wow. That's uh, incredible. Anyone of the Doolittle Raiders knows for sure what they're about to be going to do. So on April 18th, 1942, uh, Doolittle and the 16 B-25 bombers took off from the deck of the Hornet. But farther out than had hoped, uh, some 650 miles from the Japanese coast instead of 400 miles as planned uh, because they had been spotted by the Japanese Navy, Correct. Yeah, so the original plan had been to take off on April 18th, but it was to take off in the evening so that the Doolittle Raiders could have the benefit of the cover of night as they were flying over Japan. It would make them less vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. Um, and it would also get them a lot closer to Japan, right? They expected to be, you know, four to 500 miles off the coast of Japan when they finally launched. Uh, but that morning, early that morning, before the sun has risen, uh, a Japanese picket boat in the Pacific, the Nitomaru, spots the, the task force, spots the aircraft carrier coming, uh, coming through the Pacific and sends a message back uh, to Japan. The, ja- the Japanese were actually warned about the Doolittle Raid uh, before it actually happens. And the USS Enterprise sends, it ultimately sinks the Nitomaru, but everyone knows their cover is probably blown. And so Admiral Bill Halsey, who is the, uh, the captain of the task force, but also the captain of the USS Hornet, uh, gives the order to launch. And Doolittle fights for more time. Doolittle says, maybe that message didn't get back. We need more time. We need to be able to get closer to give my men a chance. But Halsey is not going to roll the dice with a, you know, one of the few operational aircraft carriers still left in the American fleet at that point. Right. Uh, so he gives the order to launch. And so not only uh, do they have to take off, you know, the, not only do they lose that you know, 300 extra miles of fuel that they could have definitely used uh, to try and get safely to Japan. But now they have to bomb in the middle of the day, in broad daylight. Good gosh. Um, and so it becomes a real, you know, it's a real risky move then. Well, did Doolittle almost abort the mission because of this? So there's no indication. Now, this may be apocryphal. <laughs> there's no indication that he ever um, had second thoughts about the mission. He, he I, You know, whether or not he held private concerns uh, about 
taking off that early and that far away. Um, he may or may not have, but uh, the lore um, and the best evidence we have is that when Halsey gave the order to go, despite Doolittle's misgivings, Doolittle said, okay, let's do it. Um, because if we don't do it now, we're not going to do it at all. Well, let me play devil's advocate uh, just a bit. Uh, was this raid an example of a short-term, short-term revenge to boost morale uh, for the American side, or did it really have fundamental strategic value? So, as conceived, it was intended to shake Japanese morale, right? To do the impossible, to show that not only Japan, but the United States, that this was not only a war America should be fighting, um, but that it can win. And that was, a re- you know, again, for all the reasons I talked about before, the Bataan Death March, the loss of the Philippines, the disastrous early parts of the campaign in North Africa, um, that was something America needed. They needed to know that this was something we could actually win, that this was not just going to be a bloodletting. Um, and so that was its initial conception, right, to, to strike a blow, to show that America was in this to win it. Um, but its strategic significance, you know, in terms of changing Japan's posture was extraordinary and really can't be underestimated. Japan went from a, you know, they, they often say when you're, uh, you know, if you have a good coach, he says, play to win, don't play not to lose. Because as soon as your mindset changes from, I got to do everything I can to win this match to every, I got to do everything I can not to lose this match, you're going to lose. Um, and that's ultimately what Japan does. It, it just makes one strategic blunder after another that in order to not lose, in order to prevent the Doolittle Raid from happening again, um, and every one of those strategic choices is debacleless. They, they ultimately are every strategic choice that Japan makes that make it vulnerable to the ultimate firebombing in 1945, to the atomic bombing uh, in, in the summer of 1945, and, and basically make its defeat um, inevitable. Well, you write in, the, in your book, uh, Last Mission to Tokyo, that uh, the bombing targets were to be still steel mills and factories in North Tokyo Bay and an oil factory in Nagoya. What, in fact, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what, what targets did they actually hit in reality? So, the, yeah, so no, the Raiders were actually fairly accurate in, in terms of um, bombing the industrial and uh, sort of quasi-military targets um, they had be, been given. Now, that should be qualified in two ways. One is the demolition bombs that they were given were only 500-pound bombs. And so even if you make a direct hit with a 500-pound bomb on an oil refinery, oil refineries are pretty big. <laughs> You're not going to do all that much damage. Um, and so in, in, that, in that respect, you know, the strategic significance in terms of the material losses that kind of bombing would inflict, um, we're, not, we're not high. And, and no one could reasonably have thought they were going to be high. It was more of a demonstration that this was a capability the United States had and would be willing to use. Um, the second caveat on that, though, is that um, in addition to demolition bombs, the, the Raiders were also equipped with incendiary bombs. Um, and incendiary bombs um, you know, are very difficult to control. And so a lot of these incendiary bombs get dropped all over uh, urban centers in Tokyo, in Nagoya, uh, to some extent in Kobe. And, and, and that is a much more indiscriminate kind of bombing, um, just by necessity. Um, it's a, it, it, you just can't drop uh, an incendiary bomb accurately. It's like firing a shotgun accurately at a distance. Um, it just spreads out too much. So 
you know, to, on the one hand, the demolition bombing was was done, you know, hardly with precision. These are just gravity bombs, um, but actually with a fair bit of accuracy because one of the things Doolittle insisted upon was low-level bombing. The incendiary bombing was where um, the bombing became much more indiscriminate. And so uh, this was, uh, as you mentioned, a one-way trip. Uh, the plan was to have landed in, unoccup- in unoccupied China at an airstrip that was to have been built by forces loyal to Chinese nationalist ruler Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, what happened with this airstrip, and, and why was it never built? <laughs> it was never built because Chiang Kai-shek opposed the Doolittle raid from the moment he heard about it uh, a few weeks before it happened. Um, there is a an apocryphal story. I actually talk about this uh, in one of the very lengthy footnotes in the book. Um, there, there's always been this apocryphal story that the airstrip was set up, um, but that the person who was supposed to bring the, the homing beacon uh, to the airstrip died in a plane crash, and therefore the raiders were never able to find the airstrip. Um, my you know, research of the primary documents, including at an incredibly high level, White House level documents uh, with Chiang Kai-shek uh, directly, uh, show that Chiang at no point uh, embraced or supported the Doolittle mission. Um, there was a number of controversies. Uh, he, he initially attempted to negotiate um, as a way of getting lend-lease. Uh, he wanted the planes. Uh, if he, if he was, his basic position was that if the planes are going to land in China, I want to be able to keep them. Um, but then he ends up opposing the raid entirely on the grounds that, he, that any location inside China is going to become a bright red bullseye for the full wrath of the Imperial Japanese Army. Uh-huh. Um, and so opposes it, and and at no point actually builds the airfield that um, that the Doolittle Raiders are told to expect, including Doolittle himself, um, when they're over China. And in fairness, Chiang Kai-shek was right. Um, the Doolittle Raiders end up, um, even though they all crash land, they end up convening uh, and rallying um, in Kuju, uh, which is a, a Chinese city that was in somewhat contested territory. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, so I'm a bit confused because are you saying that uh, Doolittle and his men took off from the Hornets without knowing these airfields that they were supposed to land did not exist? They were had, had never been built? That's right. Uh, plane 16, the 16th plane off the, the Hornet deck, the crew ultimately gets captured by the Japanese. And that's what a lot of my book is about. Um, but as, as it, they experienced it, they're flying uh, for hours over China, sending out the call. But are you saying? But are but but again, are you saying that nowhere in the American chain of command, no one had knowledge that Chiang Kai-shek had not, in fact, followed through with his promise to build these airfields. Uh, no, they, 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 they may have had hope. They kept pressuring Chiang Kai-shek to do this. Um, but even days after the raid, Chiang Kai-shek is saying, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> so the, the telegrams are reaching Washington, um, essentially the day and the day after the raid saying, I'm not going to be building these airfields or, or making further demands as a, an, an essentially an exchange to have these airfields built. But up until the day before the raid, um, uh, I believe it was John, uh, George Marshall sends a message directly, right? So George Marshall, the head of the U.S. Army, sends a message to Chiang directly saying, it is too late to abort. Please get this airstrip in place. And there's no indication that the airstrip was, that Chiang Kai-shek ever agreed. Uh, and quite the opposite, the airstrip never appeared. Well, why, uh, I mean, I appreciate the bravery of the pilots, but, you know, based on that, why didn't George Marshall just say, hey, guys, it, it doesn't look like these airstrips exist, uh, 
<laughs> I'm not going to send 16 plane, 16 B-25, six, 16 B-25s to crash land in China. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I think part of it is, you know, and this is still 1942. The, you know, the ability to communicate even with the aircraft carrier securely um, is not, um, isn't, you know, and is not going to be fairly sophisticated. So there may have been concerns about just the security of any kind of communications with the Hornet as it was getting much closer to Japan. Um, I think there may have just been uh, some basic hope that Chiang Kai-shek would make good on his initial promise to do it. Um, and that his qualms and that the direction that his qualms would be overcome by the direction uh, from General Marshall. Um, but there was this, you know, this great uncertainty. And uh, they, they, I don't think anyone in the American government knew. And certainly by the time, you know, this uncertainty was realized, um, I don't know if they had the ability really to communicate those dangers to the Hornet. Um, and just as, you know, I mean, just as difficult of a call is do you? Right. If, if you're if you're uncertain um, as to whether or not that that landing strip is actually going to be built, do you pass that information along um, if you think there's a good chance it might be built? Um, and if it's not built, how does that actually change what your plan is? What, what, what are you going to do? Um, but, you so, just, but you just said that they were, you know, the aircraft were over China sending out the 57 call signal. And how and, and again, how did that actually work? Uh on, I'm not a radio operator uh, for an aircraft. Yeah, I'm not a radio operator too. So you're at, you're at the depth of my te- <laughs> outer limit of my technical knowledge. Um, but they were supposed to go on to the 57 frequency. Oh, um, okay, okay. So it wasn't any sort of more, it wasn't any sort of Morse code. It was actually uh, sending a, a locator beacon on the 57. 57 frequency. Right. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry if I missed Sorry if I missed it. Uh, ah, okay. But they, they could send a call out on that frequency, but ah, they, okay. they weren't getting, they only got silence back. Yeah. All right. So then after the attack, uh, but this is all kind of a moot point about the airfields because they were too far out. They were what? Uh, two, uh, nearly 200 miles beyond the, the range of the planes anyway. And so they all ran out of fuel. One diverted you right to Soviet Russia. Uh, and, uh, what happened to that crew? Were they eventually released in, in, to American authorities? or They were. So remember, and this is 1942. The Soviet Union um, is neutral with Japan, right? They're allied with the United States, but they have their own problems on the Eastern Front um, after the Nazis launched Operation Barbarossa. The last thing the Soviets can handle is a two-front war with both Japan um, and, and, the Soviet, and, and, um, and Nazi Germany. Right. Uh, and so they're strictly neutral. And uh, initial sort of there were actually even initial discussions to try and land in Vladivostok because that was much closer to Japan. Um, but it was taken off the table immediately because there was no way the Russians were ever going to allow us to do that, to essentially force them into into the war with Japan. And so this plane, very low on fuel, ends up diverting up to Vladivostok in any event, um, lands, gets immediately interned as prisoners of war by the Russians because they have essentially a violated Russian neutrality, violated Russian sovereignty. And so they get interned in a, in a Soviet prisoner of war camp for the next year uh, until they're released in, uh, later in 1943. The other 15 headed for nationalist China uh, but abandoned landing plans and had to bail out or crash land and then with three crew members killed and eight captured by the Japanese. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, so all of them, in one way or another, run out of fuel and crash. Uh, okay. Two crash into the ocean off the Chinese coast. Um, the others uh, get to varying 
distances with inside China um, before either crash landing uh, or or ditching, uh, and they ju- or you know they just jumped out and, and let the planes crash. Um, and but two of the two of the crews, uh, the ones who are sort of the centerpiece of my book, um, do get captured by the Japanese. One that 16th plane I mentioned, they all parachute out. Um, and are rounded up outside of Nanchang within within about twelve hours, okay. uh, which is you know, the heart of Japanese-occupied China. Um, and then the other um, crew crashes into the ocean. Two 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 crew members die. Um, they come ashore uh, just south of Shanghai and are quickly captured by um, Chinese uh, Chinese guerrillas who are allied with the Japanese in one form or another. Uh, four die in custody. Three are murdered, um, and a fourth. Um, dies of beriberi, which is essentially malnutrition uh, due to lack of food and lack of medical care. But four survive, just barely, but they survive and are being held in a prisoner of war camp, um, not as prisoners of war. They're being held in their own little special dungeon uh, in the Feng Tai prisoner of war camp, which is outside of Beijing. Okay. Well, listen, we're coming uh, toward the, to the end of the episode, uh, but I just have two or three crucial questions and and then I want to give you an opportunity to uh, tell listeners how they might uh, purchase your book and, and also you know, make contact with you. So what did the U.S. war planners learn from the mission um, initially? And uh, did the raid over Tokyo help planners in the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So the, the I think two things um, answer that those questions together. Um, the biggest thing the uh, planners learned was that Japan was completely unprepared for an aerial attack, um, which is surprising because it was the one thing the Japanese were obviously the most aware of and afraid of. Um, but as the Doolittle Raiders flew over Japan, the anti-aircraft fire just went everywhere. In fact, the air, the anti, the, look, going to the Japanese records, um, the anti-aircraft gunners were completely inexperienced and just terrified. They actually ended up doing more damage to Tokyo than they did to any of the planes because they're just blasting away um, all this flak and, and anti-aircraft fire. So the um, you know Japan's just lack of coordination um, was incredibly surprising because Japan had a reputation for being ruthlessly efficient, um, and was probably the most important piece of intelligence that came out of the Doolittle raid. Um, by the time the atomic bombs happened, you know the war is obviously in a much different place. Um, the the um, you know previous like. Four, four months, I guess, starting in March of 1945, um, Curtis LeMay with the 20th and the 21st uh, Air Force uh, conducts the firebombing of Tokyo and, and numerous American cities. And so by the time the atomic bombs are being dropped in, in late July, you know, the planning for the atomic bombs is, is being organized in July and then they're dropped ultimately in August. You mean you um, mean numerous Japanese you mean numerous Japanese yes, cities. You said American cities. You mean numerous Japanese cities. The firebombing. Numerous Japanese cities, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah the firebombing of numerous Japanese cities. Um, the war is in a much different place and the and the strategic calculations um, are are ultimately, you know, are, are very different. And the the kind of bombing that was the objective of the Doolittle Raid, um, you know, focusing exclusively on military and industrial targets, um, is largely thrown to the wayside. Uh, by the time you get to the atomic bombings and and the policy of strategic bombing um, is fully embraced. Okay. So uh, finally, again, last question, would things have gone differently in the Pacific if Roosevelt had not authorized this Doolittle raid or, in fact, if the raid had gone horribly awry? I mean, it did go awry to some extent, obviously, the 
<laughs> no, uh, well, uh, I mean, the bombing yeah. was successful, but these, you know, the loss of crew and the imprisonment, you know, was horrific. But um, and the loss of life. But you know, if the mission, if the bombing mission and the element of surprise had not uh, been successful, how would that have impacted the the war? You think? Um, it, it would have certainly lengthened the war. Um, the first thing you would not have had was you would not have had the Battle of Midway, which is probably the most strategically important naval battle of the entire Second World War. Um, the Battle of Midway was a direct response to the Doolittle Raid and an effort to prevent uh, further U.S. carrier-based uh, air operations against the mainland of Japan. Um, I think just as, you know, as you said, I think it's important to distinguish, too, had the Doolittle Raid not happened, blunders like that would not have been made. You know, the 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 um, Japanese would not have pulled its air forces back um, as it did in order to protect the mainland of Japan um, as well, uh, to, to, in order to protect the mainland of Japan, which ended up being, you know, a catastrophic mistake because it made uh, their ground forces um, all around the Pacific far more vulnerable to American air attacks. So, so that strategic blunder would not have been made. But I think even worse is if the Doolittle Raid was a bust. If they if they attempt if the Japanese had succeeded in shooting down even a handful of the planes, um, the you know the United States would have been far more cowed um, or could have been. I don't, you know it's again we're we're dealing with historical counterfactuals, um, but the the likely result would have been that the you know politically it would have cowed the Americans uh, far more, and there'd been a far more reluctance to ever. Uh, take any direct action against Japan to take those kind of risks again. The Japanese themselves would have been emboldened. Um, all the things that they, all the mistakes they wouldn't have made, um, had you know, like the Battle of Midway or the the withdrawal of their air forces, they still wouldn't have made those. But they would have had a much greater sense of confidence moving forward. They would have not fallen into the mistake of fighting not to lose, uh, and they would have been emboldened in the idea that they could really fight to win. It would have completely changed the strategic balance of the entire war. Um, and so the fact that it was a success, and, and largely a success, just to come back to something I said early on, why, why the Doolittle Raid is just so fascinating and worth, worth studying and admiring. Um, the reason it was a success was because of people like Jimmy Doolittle. Right? He made the math add up. He was extremely careful. He thought, he thought through everything. Day in and day out, he was always tweaking, always improving, always wanting to make the plan better and and more effective and more likely to succeed, uh, more likely to be able to counter contingencies such as not being able to find the airfield in China. Um, and his doing that and just the utter success of the raid as a result um, is really to his his credit. I mean, to the to the extent there's any single person who who. In, should enjoy great personal credit for changing the tide of the Second World War. Doolittle is certainly among them, um, and and really should be remembered as such. But this also uh, reminds us that that history turns on a dime. <laughs> it's amazing. That's <laughs> right. Okay. And people matter, right? I think a much more reckless a much more reckless commander of that operation wouldn't have planned for those kinds of contingencies. Wouldn't have made all those technical adjustments. Wouldn't have been as obsessive about making all the numbers uh, add up so that, you know, he was able to ultimately launch a mission that was successful. A more reckless commander would have taken risks that could have been ultimately catastrophic. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a real, it's a real testament to how, how history can really, you know, turn on a dime and turn on the individual decisions of, of people. Good decisions, bad decisions, luck, bad luck. 
Um, it's it's so contingent, and it's and it makes history studying history and writing about it as I did in this book just such a joy. Great. Um, okay. It's, it's, well, it's listen. Such a great story. Thank you so much. Uh, we're um, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, do you have a website or a social media uh, outlet through which your listeners might contact you or comment on this uh, podcast? Sure, absolutely. If you want to read the first few chapters of Last Mission to Tokyo, you can go to lastmissiontotokyo.com. Um, just write it out all as one word, lastmissiontotokyo.com. Uh, you can see the first few chapters there. Um, as well as take the opportunity to order the book. Uh, and you can also click there to my personal website, michelleparody.com, if you want to see that. Um, and, uh, yeah, feel free to contact me. Um, I'm on Twitter at mdparody, uh, M-D-P-A-R-A-D-I-S. Uh, or you can just email me at uh, contact at michelleparody.com. And uh, the book is available July 28th uh, from, from booksellers and, and Amazon, I think, correct? Yep, booksellers everywhere, uh, and there's an audible version. So if you like listening to books, as I often do, uh, you can you can hear it. You can uh, hear the audiobook as well. So before we end, I also want to mention that listeners can also always reach me via Twitter at bdormany, and uh, please subscribe to Cosmic Controversy and comment on episodes at brucedormany.podbean.com. So, Michelle, thanks so much for your time and for taking the time and effort to write this fascinating and extremely well-researched book um it's important to keep our world war history alive and i really i personally thank you for that thank you i couldn't agree more and this was a lot of fun thanks so much for having me on this has been cosmic controversy with bruce dormany please follow bruce on facebook on twitter at bdormany or his regular posts on forbes.com until next time clear skies Music provided by RFM.